0: John Copenhaver,
2: and Al Warren heard on KCA 106.5 FM Los
1: Angeles 102.3 FM Riverside
2: and 1050
0: AM Palm Springs. We've got uh, the uh, DB Cooper case solved. No. Oh well we don't know we're gonna find out yes Um, so we have with us uh, Vern Jones and uh, the book we're talking about is DB Cooper and me it's a criminal a spy my best friend and uh, Carl Lauren is um, the author and I'm guessing that he was his friend so we'll find out Um, so welcome to the show Vern thank you so, yeah, tell, tell me about the premise of this, then. Is this, is, now, Carl is the author. Now, um, so Carl was the friend of uh, D.B. Cooper, or who, who he says was D.B. Cooper?
2: Yes, he, um, yeah, he met him um, back in the 50s, actually. They were, um, uh, Carl and his other friends started one of the first uh, parachute teams uh, in the nation, um, it, recreational parachuting wasn't uh, popular back then, and um, he had just gotten out of the military. as as a paratrooper, and they really liked jumping, so they started jumping at a small airport north of Detroit, and uh, his friend, uh, what soon became his friend, uh, Walter Recca, um, read about them in the newspaper and, and came up and joined them. So that was when they first met, and, and uh, Walter actually introduced Carl to his wife, to, to Carl's Soon to be mine at that
0: point. So, so when they when when this story was brought to you, what was your initial feeling? Like, were you thinking, "Oh, it's just another another DB Cooper thing," or, or how did you feel?
2: That's a good question. Um, the, the way it evolved is one of our editors, our publishing company, uh, Principia Media, and one of our editors came to um, our director of publishing and said, "My uncle has this book that he's been working on for a long time." And, he really wants to work with a small publisher that he can trust. And so uh, as our procedure is, uh, Dirk then um, called Carl and spoke with him for a while. And I had no idea what the story was about at that time. And after Dirk spoke with him for over an hour, Dirk called and said, you really should talk to this guy. And I said, what's the story about? And he told me it was his best friend, D.B. Cooper. And I said, you don't believe this nut job, do you? And, uh, I'm incredibly skeptical. and My education is in sciences, and uh, I just—I I thought it was crazy. Uh, and Dirk said, "Well, just give him a call and see what you think." And so I did call him um, in 2016, um, right around the, the first of February when I called him, and I talked to him. And he didn't seem like a nut job. He seemed like he was—he was credible. And some of the things that he was telling me were. Just, um, he said, you really got to come see all my evidence at my house. Um, And so, well, um, as a matter of fact, it was on April 1st. um, My wife and I were passing through that area, and so I told my wife, I said, just, you know, she was going to stay at the hotel, but our dog we travel with, and she said, I'll stay here, and I said, I'll probably be back in a little over an hour. And over five hours later, I came back, (laughs) and at that point, I said, I I don't don't know if it's Cooper. But what he did after this is really a good story. So we really kind of started pursuing this um, with on the premise that what he did after the hijacking uh, was really the story that that we thought was compelling, um, because I thought there was no way in the world he would ever convince me that it was Cooper. Um, so I, I visited him that day, um, and then a couple weeks later, Um, our filmmaker and I went down to just take some pictures and and stuff, and the filmmaker looked over in this plastic tray in his trailer where he kept all of his evidence, um, and there were audio tapes there. And he said, what are on those audio tapes? And he just said really casually, well, those are the discussions that we had between Walter and I about the hijacking. Um, So it turns out there was over uh, almost three and a half hours of audio tapes. Uh, much of the time they're talking about the hijacking and some of his other uh, very dangerous escapades after that um, and that's what started, started me thinking, man, there's, there's probably more to this and so then we actually hired a private investigator, um, Joe Koenig, who was the lead investigator for the Jimmy Hoffa case um, So and he is a forensic linguist who's written books about it and, and speaks all over the nation. Um, on on linguistics, um, and he we hired him to actually analyze the audio tapes to see if he noticed any deception in Walter's voice as he's telling the story, and then we had him analyze Carl for he interviewed Carl for I think almost nine hours, um, wow. just trying to get through, it. and then we also have a an eyewitness, believe it or not, that that saw Walt within an hour of the plane leaving SeaTac on that night um, and he was very credible. So the farther we went, actually when we got to that point which was, oh, about seven months later when when Joe said, this guy is telling the truth. Uh, now there's a difference, a linguist can only tell Joe's quick to tell you. He, can, he can't tell you if it's factual but he can say this person is telling the truth. He believes exactly what he's saying. Um, and so, though as just the evidence kept piling up, and then we found out that he had not only confessed to Carl over these years, and this was not a uh, his confession to Carl was not a deathbed confession. It started in around the year 2000 and went almost to the time of Walter's death in 2014. Um, and so they had frequent conversations. Uh, and Carl's wife listened in on many of these because, they, again, she was friends with Walter also, and um, so it's just this preposterous evidence that just keeps compiling, and you finally you say, oh "My gosh, I, I really think it is." Um, and um, yeah, and it's actually Joe in his conclusions. He finally said a few months ago, probably three or four months ago, said that I am totally convinced that he was Cooper. So. That was kind of how this all evolved as far as getting through the evidence and, uh, and evaluation. But the certainly the most surprising thing to me about this whole project was that I finally believed that he was Cooper. So
0: what do you find that's different about this and 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 that the readers will get different in this book than all the other theories and books out there?
2: Yeah, the, and, you know, there's a lot of good researchers. Um, I, we, as a result of this, I was kind of a casual follower of the Cooper thing. I mean, it was, the hijacking occurred my first year of college, which, you know, was somewhat of a blur, but, um, uh, <laughs> that was when it happened. So I, every time, I, you know, a documentary would come out, yeah, I want to watch it or something like that. But I was not a an avid follower of it. But, um, obviously since this book came to us, we've been, Just going through all the FBI files, all the other books, the documentaries, the the movies, you know, the docudramas. Uh, We just keep watching as many, just investigating as much as we can. And and there, none of the other Coopers uh, suspects um, uh, ever. Well, some of them had deathbed confessions to one person, but but Walter actually confessed to, you know, his his niece. Um, he actually had a dictated a confession. Um, and so his niece heard his sister heard it. Um, Carl heard his confession, uh, Loretta heard it. So it wasn't just just one kind of oh by the way on G.B. Cooper. Um, and the detail and everything is, is quite interesting, even though these conversations were you know, that all the tape recordings were thirty seven years later. Um, obviously he he doesn't remember all the details. Um, because after this, he he boarded hundreds of flights and did things that were certainly more illegal and probably more dangerous than this. Um, so the confessions are are certainly one thing. Um, the eyewitness was it, it was almost inconceivable to me that we found this man. Um, what helped was on the on the tapes. When Walter and Carl were talking about it in 2008, um, Walter said that he, after he he jumped, he he did fracture his leg in a jump, and he was walking through a light that he saw. And uh, I've only had one skydive in my life. I did it because I just last year, because I better, I better do it. I don't talk about this at all. But but uh, Carl, Lauren, he was he had hundreds of jumps, and they jumped in the winter in Michigan and at night. They, they jump literally every weekend uh, for about the six years that that team was together, and um, he tells me that when you jump at night, if it's overcast skies, he says it's like jumping into a tunnel. You have no idea, and you might pick up just noises. You might pick up um, like a light or something like that, um, but he said you never see the ground. You hit something before you, you hit the ground before you even see it, so there's no way to brace for it. So. Um, it's real common to get injured in an mm-hmm. Um But anyway, he said he saw this light, and so he just proceeded to. Well, first he took off his parachute. Uh, the money was tied around his neck in a, uh, a drawstring bag, a bank bag. He asked for a knapsack, but he got a bank bag, and so he ended up tying it around. He used some the shroud lines from the, uh, one of the parachutes there. He cut it open. Or he cut them off and uh, he tied it around between his legs and around his neck then he had an overcoat and he put the overcoat on over top of the money and put his belt around that and then um, put the parachute on so that was how he jumped and so when he landed he took off the parachute um, just stuffed it in the backpack for the shoot and put some branches over top of it and then he took his trench coat off or his overcoat And he put the money inside that because he knew it would look very suspicious to be walking with a bank bag at night. And (laughs) so he wrapped wrapped his coat around this and then used his belt around that on top of it and then tucked it under his arm. And that was how he walked. And it was freezing rain. Um, And he walked for a little over a mile. Um, He got to this, the light he saw was kind of a truck stop thing. It was... um, it had gas pumps. It had a little counter there, and it was a uh, kind of a cafe. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was called the TNOA Junction Cafe. And they didn't serve alcohol, and they stayed open until 11 at night or midnight. I'm sorry, and without serving alcohol. So um, that was where he went, and he walked in and he saw a guy there that he called Cowboy. And he said he was the only one in the in the cafe. And he said he walked in and he noticed, well, the guy was dressed in, all cowboy gear. He said, cowboy hat, yeah, cowboy boots. And the next room he had a guitar. And so he had no idea where he was. And he called his friend in Seattle and asked him to come get him. And he had told his friend about that he was going to do this, um, but they were both so drunk his friend didn't remember it, he said. But um, he... Uh, called his friend, and he didn't know where he was, so he asked Cowboy if he would give this guy directions. Um, and so he did. And then Don came down and picked him up and drove him back to his house in Hartland. heartland. Um, so that was a pretty good description. Well, the other thing that Walt said was this Cowboy, as he left, he drove away in a dump truck.
1: Um, a, a dump a truck?
2: Dump, yes, a dump truck. And so when... Carol went out to try to find this guy. He was. He thought, "Well, where would I look? Well, I'll, I'll check, you know, um, uh, some place that might work on trucks." And so he he went to a a, a gas station that had a, a towing service, and he asked the owner there, who was a young guy, "That um, did he have anyone that fit this description?" He said, "He's a, he's." You know, He dressed like a cowboy. He obviously was a singer because he was going to a gig that night and he drove a, drove a dump truck. And he said, well, no, I don't, but let me ask around to the older guys around town. And uh, Carl went back. He lives in Florida. He went back to Florida and uh, he got a call a couple of days later and the guy said, I, I think I found your guy. And so the guy's name is Jeff Osadich and Jeff um, was a former police officer. Uh, as we checked out Jeff in the town, we went to the newspaper, uh, talked to one of the guys in the newspaper office and said, what, what do you know about this guy? And he said, well, why do you want to know? And I said, well, we think he witnessed something, but you know, and he said, if it's Jeff Osadish, if that's who saw it, he said, you couldn't have found a better witness. <laughs> um, he said he's so highly respected around, it turns out he really is, um, his whole family is. Um, and so. He, we talked to Jeff, and Jeff said the first time he talked to Carl, he said, I you know, just, he said, you know, I, I remember something that happened, he said, it, and as it, I like, remember, I know it was somewhere around Thanksgiving, but he described it because he said, I'm a police officer, and the guy was really suspicious. And he wasn't a police officer at the time, he was, re, you know, he had, they, it was a small town called Rosalind, and they had actually closed down their sheriff's office and, and became part of the county. Um, and so he um, uh, he said, I watched him. He said, of course, the, the bundle under his arm was very, very distinctive. And then he, he actually told us, he said, I saw him walking alongside the road when I was driving down here, but this was not my dump truck. It was my employer's, and we couldn't pick up um, hitchhikers. And as a matter of fact, they had taken the passenger seat out. And so he said, I saw him, and I felt bad I couldn't pick him up. But then he came in he said, now this guy was so suspicious, he had no idea where he was. He said his car broke down and you'd think, you know, if you were driving a car you'd have an idea where you were. Um, and so anyway, it just was all such a strange thing. And he said, you know, then the guy paid for my coffee and, and uh, I left. So his description of Walt and the, the encounter that happened was was very credible. And to this day, he's still alive, by the way. He's um uh, he's very articulate um, and he's yeah in, in the documentary
1: he'll actually hear so just for the listeners that aren't familiar with the DB cooper case because I mean it, it is a rather old case um, it, you really caught my attention with the way you described that he wrapped the money around him but just to refresh our memories how much money was it
2: it was $20,000. I'm sorry, $200,000. Yeah, I started to say there's a, a big difference there. <laughs> it's like $1.2 in today's currency. So how did
1: he know to wrap them? Because as I'm listening to the way that he wrapped the money around him and jumped with you know military precision, and I say that because my brother is a jump master, And you can tell by all the screws and and metal in his back now. (laughs) And what you said was exactly true. If you're jumping at night and you're jumping, if there's fog, clouds, anything, I mean, you're hitting something before you're landing on something. And that's exactly the way he describes it. But it's almost like he did it with military precision. You know, you've got all of this money, which is added weight, right. but he knew how to hang it. Did he have any type of military training, or was he just,
2: you know? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, this, Walter was, uh, was an Army paratrooper, and then he um, was discharged, and then he uh, joined the United States Air Force as a rescue and survival specialist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he literally made hundreds of jumps by this time. He jumped up in Alaska he jumped in, in Labrador into icy waters we have we actually have newspaper clippings of all of these things and, and his uh, military record uh, He was um, uh, he was actually decorated um, for um, uh, some of the uh, things that he did when he was um, he worked when he worked for the United States Air Force and rescue and survival he was assigned to the the uh, Thunderbirds, and they did a mission down to South America, mm-hmm. and then he also participated in the uh, the Berlin airlift. Um, so he was very experienced with jumping. He was he was he was really he was very familiar with the drop zones out in uh, near the Seattle area. Uh, he was registered with the United States Parachute Association. He was the 99th person to uh, be on their registry. Um, and the, the weird thing is that um, you know people are talking that there are uh, there are quite a few usual suspects. And you know, once in a while if you read an article, say the top ten suspects. Um, Walter wasn't on that. The, the the FBI claimed that their search focused on experienced parachutists, and they interviewed all of the suspects were on there, but the one person they didn't interview was Walter. As a matter of fact, the guy who picked him up, his friend Don, who drove from Seattle, was a fire jumper. That's how they got to know each other. They met up in Alaska as fire jumpers. And they interviewed him, but they didn't interview Walt. Yeah. Why the difference? Um, we have theories. I don't know. I, I can't speak for the FBI. <laughs> they're, not, they're not talking about it, and they aren't accepting anything. The only thing they, they have said that they would accept is physical evidence, such as one of the $20 bills or the parachute.
1: Uh, those, we well, it, uh, okay. The the twenty dollar bill, I, I can I can see, yeah. but the parachute. I mean, come on. There's thousands of those.
2: Oh, yeah, you know the funny thing when we went out to Culebra area, um, people use parachutes for weird things out there. <laughs> 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 they really do. They use them for covers for wood. They use it, if they you know it's uh, it's kind of it, to
1: kind to of cover
2: cars. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that for kids for hammocks, you know, it's just weird things. So, um, but yeah, those are the two things that they said. And and quite honestly, I'm uh, I'm kind of surprised Walt didn't keep one of the twenties because he kept lots of stuff. Um, He kept the underwear. He wore bottoms of long underwear. (laughs) Uh, He kept those. He gave them to Carl, and so. I was so certain that he would keep a twenty. I looked through all the pleats yeah. and everything in these long underwear, but I, I sure can't find it if it's there. But but towards the end of his life, he had some caregivers who uh, took a lot of money from him. And I was and I you know I I don't know this, but it was just if he did, there's a good chance that they like he kept his immunization records from the military. Who does that, you know?
1: Well. You never know when they'll come in handy I mean, <laughs>
2: yeah. it, it's more handy than the underwear I mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah, since he was he was about a hundred I don't know what he said one hundred sixty pounds one hundred seventy pounds, something like that when he at that age. And uh, when he died he was about three hundred pounds. So he, he jokes on the tape he says they don't fit me
1: anymore. <laughs> well yeah. yeah
2: but sure but, yeah. but the,
1: the weight is important. You know, if if you're going to jump, a parachute can only like, carry so much. And yeah, yeah. like 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 my, my brother, now I, I have to keep referring to my brother, you know, now I will repel out of a chopper, no problem. I have yeah. the security of that rope. But okay. jumping jumping out of a plane heck no. But my my, my brother says that whenever you jump, you're carrying about 200 pounds of gear, and it's it's between your legs, and as soon as you get ready to hit the ground, you you release it, because that weight's going to hit the ground first, and then you're not as heavy when you hit. And the way way you described him jumping and the way he tied it off, it's... It,
2: it tells me military all, all over, you know. Yes, yeah, that it is. It's just it is military procedure. You're exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Get the parachute out of um, out of sight as soon as possible. But that's that's exactly what he describes.
1: Now, the one thing that, that has always come up in every documentary that I watch about this, though, so. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. is that there were 20s that were found in a local river.
2: Right, right. Yeah, at the Bar, yeah, down the Columbia River. That's, um, we don't know how it got there. What we do know is that on the audio tapes that Walter talks about when his friend Don came down, Don was kind of a petty thief, if you would. He, he didn't, um, as Carl knew Don also, and Carl said, um, yeah, he didn't really like rob banks or anything, but you wouldn't leave your wallet out. <laughs> so, <laughs> he said that, so he says. So he he had had some brushes with the law, and um, so Don came and picked him up, and so Walt took a, he said his words a few bundles out of the bag and put them in Don's coat and said, "There, now you're part of this." And uh, Don Walt reports that Don said. Uh, you know the prisons are full of people like you and I. Um, that was around But he he did give Don some money, and Don uh, Walton Carl are talking about it um, in the audio tapes. And, and Don was really paranoid. Um, the FBI did come, as I mentioned, they interviewed him, and he was afraid to do anything with that money. So we do know that Don lived in in Seattle, and then he moved down to Olympia. Um, uh, a few months before the money was found at Tenenbar. Um So if there's a connection, I don't know. It's the best guess that I have, but it is purely a guess. I have no evidence of it whatsoever. So.
0: Do do we know kind of what the purpose of this was? Like, what, why did he do it?
2: He wanted that was money. He was tired of being poor.
0: <laughs> yeah. He, well, he so money. am I. <laughs> well, that, it's just yeah, that's what I mean. It's kind of an elaborate scheme, if you know, if you will. Like it's kind of uh, okay. So I need money, and and um, most people that are you know uh, you're going to do something illegal. It's rob a bank seems to be popular, or um,
2: right uh, things like huh. that.
0: So this is kind of like okay. Well, how about if I do this? This is a little bit elaborate to think of, isn't it? Yeah.
2: Well, keep it. It, it was, but Carl. Says that when they, after these guys got done jumping, they, uh, Walter did rob a restaurant in in, uh, Detroit. uh, Unsuccessfully, he was captured (laughs) as soon as he walked out the door, as a matter of fact. Uh, (laughs) It it wasn't much of a getaway. So he was arrested, and um, they were going to, you know, so he was in there, and he was working for the Teamsters as as an enforcer at that time. Um, (laughs) And so um, the Teamsters bailed him out, but at that time, uh, he was fired immediately because they said, "We can't. You, you're a felon, uh, we can't have anything to do with you anymore, uh, which was quite common <coughs> practice according to uh, Joe Canning. He said they, they don't dare because it's so easy to get those people to turn after you arrest them for something.
1: The Teamsters
2: so, said that? Yeah, they, they bailed him out of jail, and then he immediately jumped bail, and um, that was his first trip out to Washington. Uh, he, he left Michigan and, and went out there. Um, that was the first time he moved out there, but um, uh, yeah. So he he had that um, that knowledge, but Carl said that when they were after they were jumping, they would all sit around and drink beer and and uh, uh, and, shoot, uh, and, and tell stories. And so um, he said that uh, every once in a while, Wallace kept saying, "You know." I, I think the best way to do a robbery would be to do it on a, to, to rob an airplane, is the way he said it. Uh, obviously, that was in the 50s, the mid, you know, the late 50s, so he hadn't thought this out thoroughly. Um, but he talked about it then. Um, and when Carl asked Walt on this, he said, well, how did you come up with that? And he said that he had watched some show on television, and it was about these guys that demanded, that they were in a bank, and so they demanded a getaway car, and then they demanded an airplane, and they said, I thought I could just cut out all that other stuff by just doing it on the airplane. Um, but well, he good. Was just, yeah, he, good boy. He was point. Really sick of being poor. He worked on the uh, Grand Coulee Dam, actually. as a welder. He was a really mediocre welder. Um, that's <laughs> by all <our> report. <laughs> I that his friends would say he's really a mediocre welder. But he worked there just kind of periodically. He wasn't really... Uh, I uh, He was with the iron workers, but he wasn't... I, I, he was just kind of like an apprentice, I understand. So, so he can't
0: weld, and he can't rob a bank, so he's going <laughs> to...
2: <laughs> You'll notice that it didn't require it, it, um, precision welding to get out
0: of the plane, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so so kids, remember that. Whatever, you, yeah. whatever you're failing at, there's always something you're going to be good at. <laughs>
2: yeah, he was definitely good at a lot of things, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, so what, what do we know about the rest of his life after the, um, the jump and the, um, mm-hmm. all that? What, what did you find out about how he lived after that?
2: Well, um, this is what we know. Uh, well, first of all, what Walt said was that um, he had been, um, well, back in the early 60s, um, Walt actually applied to the CIA. Oh, um, well, there you actually, go. actually in 1962 he made a trip out to uh, Elsinore, California, which is a, a pretty famous drop zone, and because they were he was told that that was where the CIA recruits from, and so he did that in 62, and in uh, 1963 he took a test. Well, in 62 when he was there he met this guy that became his friend for the rest of his life. Uh, we have his full name, but we're pretty sure that he was one of walter's handlers for the rest of his life so we call him philip q but uh, i I told you walter kept things he kept diaries so we have literally phone numbers bank account numbers things that we couldn't ever disclose or show anyone um, but it's they're all in this little thing and this phil his name shows up repeatedly all over the world warsaw um, saudi arabia montreal indonesia and all where Walter's passports. We have all of his passports. Match him up being uh, shortly before that or shortly after that. Um, so he applied to the CIA in um, in, in uh, June twenty first, nineteen sixty three. Um, I'm sorry, September eighteenth of sixty three is when he got his reply, and this, they basically said, "We cannot at this time utilize the qualifications that you have made available to us." So he didn't get the job within, and that was in sixty three. And Carl really thinks that was when he just said, my life's just going really bad because it was in 65 that he uh, robbed the the, uh, restaurant. Um, So he had a connection with that. And then January 1st of 1971, 11 months before the hijacking, this Phil got him a job at Vanel Corporation there in Seattle. Um, And so in addition to the part-time job he did at the dam Welding, he did some... Just small assignments for this new employer, Vanel Corporation, which um, they actually brag about in some of their literature. That uh, uh, that one vice president from Vanel said, "We're not mercenaries. Mercenaries kill people. We hire people to do that." Um, and so, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> and so that was his first. But um, on his resume, on Walt's resume, um, which is. Uh, quite strange, because his this resume that I have in front of me, was uh, the place of issue was Daheran, Saudi Arabia, and it was compiled by the Consulate General of the United States of America. Um, I don't know who does your resume, but they don't do mine. Um, <laughs> but it shows there that he worked with Benel from 71 to 74. But Walt said that a couple of months after the hijacking, uh, that uh, he was working at a site, and these guys that he had never seen before with hard hats came up and said, um, Do you want to have a beer after work? Well, that was always a key phrase for Walt. He don't think he ever turned one down. And so he met him at the Brown Derby out in Spokane. And uh, Walt said he sat down. These two guys came in. They all ordered beers. And after the waitress brought the beer and went back, the one looked at him and said, Do you want to go to prison for the rest of your life? Walter. They, actually used his, they actually used his real name, which was Walter Pika. That was what he was born with, Walter Pika. But since '65, he was going by Walter Reka, R-E-C-A. And so Walt, of course, said no. And then they said, then you work for us. And they got up and left. And um, he asked around at the work site um, with the, the union and said, you know, were the, who were those two new guys that were there yesterday? And they said there weren't new guys yesterday. And he explained the situation that these guys had, you know, bought a beer and then walked out. And the guy said, "I can assure you, they're not, they're not iron workers." And Walt said, "Well, how can you assure me of that?" And they said, "We don't know one, let alone two iron workers who would leave a beer on the table." But um, so <laughs> that was their the- True. <laughs> <laughs> so from that point on. Um, this is a guy who had an eighth-grade education. He did speak, uh, he was raised in a family that spoke Russian and Polish, um, and so he spoke that fluently. And uh, so from that point on, they, Walt said to Carl that they would send him, he would get tickets to different cities, and he would take these flights and go through training. And he kind of described the training to Carl, you know, basically ob- observations and stuff like that. And then, in um, uh, So this guy who had, like I said, an 8th grade education, really a, a mediocre welder at best, um, he got his first passport under his assumed name, Walter Recca. His, he hadn't changed his name legally yet. And from that point on he went to over 30 countries starting in 1974 and his passports have him literally going all over the world. Uh, until up to 1985, um, and he described to Carl that his job was to to kill people. Um, that's what he did, and he estimated that he killed over 20 people. Um, and he said they were all really bad people; they all deserved to die. And uh, a couple of them are, are are names that would be recognized. So. Oh. Um, yeah. Oh,
1: not. You can't drop us off at the corner <laughs> like that.
2: <laughs> yeah. I'm worried about talking too long. I mean, I, I, you see, there's just so much. It's crazy. When we first started talking to Carl, it's like, Carl, you've got to just answer the question. You can't And now I'm doing the same thing, so I apologize, guys.
0: Oh. <laughs> uh, that's fine. Now we know. Now we know. <laughs> well, that's okay. So, now, um... I see that you also are like the publisher like uh, that's who you are you're uh, an author and, and your uh, principia is your media company right
2: right principia yes yeah, correct yeah
0: okay uh, yeah. tell us a little yeah. bit about that how how uh, what's that about
2: um, that started uh, in uh, two thousand and eleven um when I wrote a book, wrote my first book, and I submitted it to publishers, and the um, I got some offers back from the publishers. But I uh, in my my real job, um, <laughs> the one we've had for, uh, <laughs> since 19, uh, 1989, um, and that I read a lot of government contracts, federal regulations, and stuff like that. So I was just reading these. Contracts they offered, and I thought, "What well, is this crazy? Who in their right mind would sign this contract?" Um, and so I told my agent, "I said, I'm not going to sign this." And he said, "Well, they're all going to be like that," and he was right. They're all they all come out the same you know format. And so um, I said, "Well, um, we can do better than that. We, especially for new and emerging authors, there's really it's a really bad deal for most of them. And so. I did it. I said I knew we could do it better, and so we do. And so we work with very few authors, but um, that's intentional. In the last <clears throat> in the last two years, very very few because this has just been so totally time consuming. Um, but um, yeah, so when we select to work with an author, all of our authors make money on their books, um, and they they get into it. with it's a partnership that we have, they they maintain all of their rights and. So that's kind of the arrangement that we have with most of them. We try to make sure that uh, they go into this with so their eyes wide open, and know exactly what they're getting into, um, and then that's, um, that's that's kind of how it all starts. Hmm.
0: What do you guys mainly publish? Like, what's just is it uh, true crime or what? What's kind of your subjects?
2: I've never published a true crime before. Um, it, it, it's very it, um, it, it's very diverse actually. Um, uh, published um, a collection of stories by the um, uh, former, how is it the head police officer at the Michigan State Police. Um, uh, Bob Muldor, It's a really, really good um, memoir that he, he um, that he wrote. Um, we <laughs> wrote a book on sustainability. Um, or we published it. Um, we published with um, Joe Caney's book, um, Getting the Truth, which is uh, now used as, um, uh, as a teaching tool. And he uh, uh, even at the FBI. It's a, it's mm-hmm. So it's just really diverse uh, group of books. But the one thing in common is that they're they're good stories, and the people, the authors that we work with, are willing to take advice, coaching, and then we just do. We work with really good artists uh, on the interior design and, and editors and, and proofers. So that's um, that's kind of what, the, what
0: mm-hmm. we do here. Oh it sounds good. Very interesting. So n- now with uh, D.B. Cooper here, um, what is it that convinced you? Um, you being a skeptic and all, um, <laughs> what made you uh, jump over the, the fence to uh, deciding this was the true story?
2: Yeah, you know, it was. Um, Literally, it was a ten. Where I really started leaning was when um, Jeff Osadet, uh explained to us his meeting with Walter, and then we started thinking, "My goodness!" this is But but really, I, I think the answer to the question is when when we had Joe evaluate, and it's, it's fascinating uh, watching him evaluate and how he he, he tells you know uh, what he's looking for as far as truth uh, and his specialty. He does he. Certified fraud examiner, and so he's really good at finding uh, embezzlers and stuff of that nature. But he, um, watching him analyze uh, what Jeff said and his discussion with him, and how Jeff, Joe is so thorough, and when he came back and said, Vern, I, this is classic truthful statement. And that was really when I said, My I God, I think we have Cooper. That's crazy. So, but that, is, that was literally the, the moment when I said, yeah, let's, let's keep digging into this. And if we find something that disputes any of this, then we give it up. But until then, that's, that's what really got us. Um, we literally traveled all over the country um, interviewing people. and I mean, We found a guy that um, Walter bought a house from just after the hijacking, and he paid cash. Um, to a guy in Spokane you know, the guy was kind of a house flipper and he's still alive he lives in Kentucky and um, we interviewed him at length and he he too is just every time Joe looks at these he looks at these transcripts and, and analyzes uh, um, uh, the transcript and he just said this guy's truthful and it was it was quite impressive So how's the
0: how's the DP well, Cooper um, Club? Um, reacting to the book and how what what kind of things are they saying?
2: Um, it's been kind of interesting. Um, the um, you know they're, they're really most of their stories and, and uh, the way I describe it is that most of their stories kind of evolve around just the six and a half hours that he was on the plane. You know, and did he remember this? And so um, Walter doesn't you know he's telling the story literally 37 years later. After traveling all over the world and flying literally around the world many times, um, so they said, "Well, did he remember this?" And it's like, if he did, he didn't say it, you know. And why didn't he say that? Well, I don't know why he didn't say it, you know. And uh, one of the things that um, that really bothered them, and it's understandable, is that um, Walter said that. That he initially went to the side door of the plane, and then the stewardess said, "Well, I want to use the back door," and he said, "Well, yeah, that's good." Um, Well, the reports from the FBI are that they literally boarded the plane from the aft or rear stairs, and so why would he not immediately go to that? Um, And so that was a question that that we had too, Um, and we didn't have to put it in the book, and we didn't have to put it in the documentary, but we decided to because. He said, listen, this is the evidence that we have. So, um, And that's what he said. Um, so they're saying, well, that doesn't even make sense. So I, I'm yeah. thinking, you know, if, if I want to make excuses for him, I can say, you know, well, he was probably pretty darn nervous walking into the jet to begin with. Um, and then Carl, as a, Carl was a commercial pilot also uh, for years. And so, and Carl said, well, I would have never guessed those back. Stairs opened. Uh, no other plane did. And he said, "The other thing is, we always jumped on a side of a plane. So that might be the explanation. But again, it wasn't something that Carl ever asked Walter. Um, and but they clearly spoke about it. And so we thought, okay, fine. We're going to put it in the. We're going <laughs> to put it in the book. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you can, uh, you know, take question of it. But that's okay. You know, we have. Uh, um, we have a lot of other evidence, but that's that's kind of one of the things that, that bothered them. They, they didn't like it that that um, that Walter wasn't on the list of all the FBI agents or, or FBI's you know suspects. Um, but the funny thing is, all of theirs were, and the FBI discounted every one of them. Yeah. So, you know, they chose not to interview Walter. Why? I can guess, but I don't know because I can't speak for them. But. I, I have suspicions
0: certainly yeah yeah well now so you're this is going to be a documentary as well right
2: yes it is and uh, tell us yeah, about that it,
0: when does it government yeah
2: um, it will be there's going to be a premiere um, out in Elum, Washington um, and the premiere will be on July 14th yeah it's a Saturday July 14th um, yeah, at one o'clock in the afternoon, and it's going to be a benefit that we're doing for all the firefighters. Um, Cleolum almost burned, as you, I'm sure you guys are aware. It was really yeah. close to the city last year. Yeah. And so we wanted to do something for Cleolum and for the firefighters. So there's um, literally all proceeds are going directly to the firefighters. Wow,
0: that's that's great. Um, we'll we'll link that as well as the book on the, on the webpage and everything. Um, mm-hmm. Well, um, so there we go, we we know D.B. Cooper, Um, (laughs) no it's been fascinating, we'll get your uh, um, Mm. website up as well for the publishing, so um, again um, our guest has been Vern Jones and uh, we've got the D.B. Cooper case solved, so um, everyone pick up the book, go out and see the uh, um, documentary actually if you are in the area. And uh, support the firefighters. Uh, thanks for
2: being on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you. Thank you for being on. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com.
2: Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me?
1: Well, good night.